Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Persia. You are listening to the History of Persia podcast. And as we've been hearing from Trevor, the history of the Persian Empire is a story of Persian domination of much of the Middle East and Central Asia. But this was not the first time these lands were conquered, and it would certainly not be the last. I don't want to give too much away, but in the year 329 BCE, the important Persian city of Samarkand in modern-day Uzbekistan was conquered by some guy by the name of Alexander. But what's interesting about this city is that about 1700 years later, this same city, Samarkand, would be the glowing capital of an empire forged by a man known as Timur, or Tamerlane, or simply Timur. And Timur has gone down in history as a fantastic tactician, a man who supposedly never lost a battle, a great patron of the arts, and one of the most brutal conquerors of all time. From about 1365 until 1405 CE, Timur was almost constantly at war, building for himself an empire that stretched from modern-day Turkey to India, from Syria to the Russian steppe, and I want to know how and why this happened. If that sounds interesting to you and you want the story of Timur told by a guy who talks too fast and has loud neighbors, then check out my show, The Timur Podcast. Find out more about it at timurpodcast.com or listen to it in most places where you find podcasts. And with that said, take it away, Trevor. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 33, Revenge of the Persians. You just heard from James of the Timur podcast. Even early on, this is a high-quality podcast about a fascinating figure and time in Central Asian history, which I highly recommend. Even if you're not going to start listening to the Timur podcast right away, you should totally check out his website timmerpodcast.com, where James has posted a truly amazing world map that plots out the locations of dozens of the best history podcasts. It's really a phenomenal resource all on its own, but also check out his show while you're there. Last time on this podcast, I left us off in 498 BCE. After invading and torching the provincial capital at Sardis, the Ionian Greek rebels retreated to Ephesus along with their Eritrean and Athenian allies. As soon as they arrived at Sardis, a contingent of Persian reinforcements took off after the Greek invaders and intercepted them not far from their destination. The Battle of Ephesus swung decidedly in the Persians' favor, and the Greeks were massacred. The survivors fled back to their home cities, and the Athenians and Eritreans abandoned the war altogether. Despite this defeat, the general success of burning the Lydian capital at Sardis 
convinced other Greek cities to throw in with the rebels. So even as the mainland allies left, the remainder of 498 BCE saw Greek poles all along the coasts of Anatolia rise to rebellion, from Byzantium in the northeast to the Carian port of Meuse in the southwest. The revolt would eventually spread to the islands of the eastern Mediterranean, to places like Chios, Thassos, and most importantly, Cyprus. In an ideal world, this episode would be all about the politics and intrigue of those cities rising up and making the decision to rally around Aristagoras and the other Ionian leaders of the revolt. Unfortunately, that's not what Herodotus bothered to record, and thus not what I am able to speak about today. Instead, we jump ahead to 497, to follow the Persian armies in their efforts to quell these uprisings. Why did they wait until the next year to do anything about the uprisings? Well, it seems likely that most of the Greek cities stopped paying their tribute and went into revolt in the autumn or winter of 498, and thus the Persians wouldn't have wanted to respond until the campaign season which begins in the late winter or early spring of the next year. The exact sequence of events is not clear. Herodotus says that four Persian commanders set out to put down the various rebellions, but also portrays most of the campaigns in a linear fashion with one commander striking out right after the last. This doesn't make much sense, and the historian explicitly tells us that they each led separate armies, and makes clear that two of them acted simultaneously. So the most likely explanation here is that there was more overlap than Herodotus explicitly states, but as usual, it's hard to know. Technically, the first campaign that Herodotus tells us about is the Persian reconquest of Cyprus by the general, or Hazara Patish as generals were called, Artibios. But given that I just did an episode that required a lot of exposition for a new place where we haven't spent much time, I'd felt like I should delay Cyprus for now. Instead, today's episode will follow the first couple of Persian offensives in Anatolia. In the aftermath of Sardis, three Persian generals assembled at what remained of the Lydian capital and met with satrap Artaphernes. These three were Dorises, Himaeus, and Otanes. Each was a son-in-law to Darius the Great, through daughters of the great king that Herodotus doesn't name. Although he is the one we'll spend the least time with in this episode, Odonis is the one who needs some additional details. Or rather, he's the only one I have any additional details for. In episode 31, I said that this Odonis was Odonis the son of Sisamnes, formerly a judge and satrap of Lydia, and now commander of the Persian presence in Thrace and Macedon, as well as the Aegean. It seems I might have been incorrect about that. At the time, I said he was definitely not the same as Odonis, the co-conspirator who joined Darius in his coup against Bardia. But now I'm seeing conflicting suggestions in different sources. So this is somebody named Odonis. He's Darius's son-in-law, so he might have been the conspirator, but he might also have been the commander who was already active in this region. On the full Achaemenid family tree, available from historyofpersiapodcast.com, I've listed them separately because, frankly, there's already enough incest and generation crossing on that diagram as it is. All three probably set out around the same time. 
and Odonese was actually probably the first one to see any combat, just given the general geography of Anatolia. But for the sake of narrative flow, I'll start with Dorises, just like Herodotus. He went northeast from Sardis to the Aeolic Greek cities of the Troad. It's actually just occurring to me that I don't think I've ever mentioned the Troad before, so just to be quick, taking its name from the legendary city of Troy, which was located in the region, the Troad is the northmost section of the Anatolian west coast. It's basically the area between the island of Lesbos and the Hellespont. Anyway, Dorises. He was either one of Persia's best generals at the time, or the cities revolting in the north didn't have quite as much conviction as their Ionian cousins. These northern revolts seem to have been focused on the coast of the Hellespont, because Herodotus lists Dardanos, Abydos, Percote, Lamsakos, Pisos, and Perion. All of those cities sit on the narrow strait between the Aegean Sea and the Propontis, which we now call the Sea of Marmara. As Herodotus tells the story, each of the first five cities fell to Dorises in just one day. That basically precludes any suggestion that this was siege warfare. Lacking much of a navy, the Persians could not have hoped to effectively besiege these seaside poles, but it seems they didn't need to in the end. Single-day victories implies that the Greeks either surrendered or tried to meet the Persians in a pitched battle. At least those are the most likely options. On the open ground of the Hellespontine coast, that would have left the Greeks open to Persian cavalry attacks, which is the same theory I suggested for the Battle of Ephesus. But of course, it's still just me spinning ideas out there. There's no actual way to know because Herodotus just tells us that they each fell in a day. It's also possible, I guess, that Dorises was just able to overcome their defenses quickly, though probably a bit less likely. I have to suspect that Dorises was considered a very capable general, because Herodotus says that he was traveling between Pisus and Perion to continue his campaign when he heard that the Greeks of Caria had gone into revolt. Caria, again, is on the far southern end of the Anatolian coast. Rather than continuing on to Parion, and expecting one of the commanders further south to go deal with this problem, Dorises dropped what he was doing in the Troad and raced his whole army down the whole length of Anatolia. Our second general, Himaeus, made his way to the Hellespont to replace Dorises. Up to this point, Himaeus had only taken one city, which sounds like a ratio seriously in Dorisi's favor until you consider that taking one city by siege significantly changes the tactics and takes much more time than one-day pitched battles or surrenders in five cities. It also seems that one city may have been particularly important. Hemias' first victory was at the city of Chios, located on the southwest corner of the Propontis, Herodotus implies that this was one of the most important cities in the region, possibly the most important. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned that the rebels took Byzantium. It seems that the key crossing of the Dardanelles didn't revolt on its own, but was instead seized by outside actors, 
At least that's how Herodotus seems to- f I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. Phrase it. Perhaps, and again this is my own theorizing, Taking Kios was a key to reasserting Persian control in the wider region. It would certainly explain why Herodotus never mentions the Eastern Propontis again. Strangely enough, he never mentions Parion again either. It seems kind of weird that the Persians were on their way to attack the city, and then just didn't because of a change in leadership? That's probably not the answer. It's more likely that Herodotus just didn't mention that one city specifically. Though he doesn't name any more specific battles in the north, Herodotus says that this Himaeus reconquered the whole northwestern coastline of Anatolia, specifically listing the Troad and Aeolus to its south, as well as an inland tribe called the Gurgites, who he believed were descended from the ancient Trojans. In a sense, they probably were, as pre-Greek indigenous inhabitants of the Troad. While campaigning somewhere in the Troad, Hemias became ill and died of natural causes. Artaphernes, a brother of the great king and satrap of Lydia, went up to the Troad to take over the command there. But it seems like Hemias must have left things mostly settled, because we don't hear about any more campaigns, and Artaphernes was back in Ionia the next year. Up to this point, Artaphernes had been with Odonis campaigning against the core of the rebellion in Ionia proper. Their plan was evidently to start in the northern edge of Ionia and push all the way south to Miletus, which was still the epicenter of the revolt. Herodotus tells us that the army under Otanes and Artaphernes started in Cumae, which was technically the southmost Aeolian city, before moving to Clatsomenae, near modern Izmir. It seems that the Persians only needed to topple regional centers of resistance to put down the revolts. 
as there were many Greek settlements between those two cities. Either these victories crushed the collective armies of the whole region, or the Ionian cities were not quite as cohesive as Herodotus wanted his later Greek audience to believe. That latter option is pretty likely, and as we get further into the wars with Greece, we'll see quite a lot more of that. Herodotus, writing around a time of growing hostility between Sparta and Athens, often tries to push Greek unity even when it doesn't actually fit in with the historical fact. Despite these initial successes, the Persian offensive in Ionia seems to have stalled after taking Clazomenae. At least Herodotus doesn't tell us about any more conflicts in that region for the year after that. There are a whole range of possible explanations. Perhaps troops had to be diverted to handle the sudden and widespread uprising in Caria, which could potentially have acted as a fresh reserve of troops for the Greeks. Perhaps Odonis stalled the campaigns in Ionia while Artaphernes just went north to replace Hemias. Or maybe those two cities only fell after long and protracted sieges, thus slowing down Odonis. Herodotus provides no details, and so I have no answers. Just based on travel time to march the whole army down the length of Anatolia, Dorises would have arrived in Caria in late 497. He first encountered Carian troops on the east bank of the Marcius River, a minor tribute to the Meander. Herodotus tells the story of a Carian commander suggesting that the back of their formation was put against the river, on the basis that their men would fight more valiantly without a good route for retreat. I'm not sure why this particular commander had a suicide wish, but to anyone with even a modicum of tactical forethought, that sounds like a horrible plan, which would explain why Herodotus says the suggestion was ignored. Much more bizarrely, Herodotus says, in his own opinion, that would have been the best option. Maybe it's just because it's not the option that played out in history, and he's always rooting for a Greek victory. In reality, the Carians tried to give themselves the tactical advantage and positioned themselves facing the river, so that when the Persians crossed the meander, their left flank and rear were up against the two intersecting rivers. Ideally, the Greeks would have pushed up against the Persians and forced them into the water, breaking their cohesion and sparking a mass drowning. Fortunately for the Persians, the Carians had no such luck. After a long and drawn-out battle, the Persians overwhelmed the Greeks through sheer force of numbers. There was a slaughter, and the Carian dead, according to Herodotus, outnumbered the Persian casualties by five to one. Herodotus gives obscenely exaggerated numbers of 10,000 Greek dead to 2,000 Persians. It's implausible that the Carians would have been able to field 10,000 men at all, and Herodotus is well known for making up illogical figures for the armies of the Persians. But it's not unlikely that that 5 to 1 ratio could have played out. According to some estimates of this calendar year, this would also have been the break between the campaign seasons of 497 and 496. It's also plausible that some of Hemias and Artaphernes' work in the Troad covered that gap as well. The Greek survivors of the Battle of the Marcias, 
fled to the sacred city of Labranda, home to a major temple of Zeus. Herodotus tells us that these Carians were debating whether to surrender to the Persians or hop on ships and go into exile when reinforcements arrived from Miletus. The Milesians stiffened the Carians' resolve and encouraged them to face the Persians again with fresh troops. That turned out to be a mistake. Sacred city of Zeus or no, Dorises offered the Greek rebels no respite at Labranda. Herodotus describes it as a sacred grove, so we're probably not talking about a large fortified city here. Maybe a small town with wooden walls at best. Herodotus describes a brutal battle that left many Persians and Carians dead, but depleted the Milesian reinforcements most of all. The Persians took over Labranda again, but the Carians got the last laugh in the end. Dorises continued south to subdue the rest of the region, but was ambushed by rebels near a town called Pedasos. The Carians attacked by night and overran the Persians with the element of surprise. Dorises and his entire command staff were killed in the attack, and the Persian army in the south was broken. So far as we can tell from Herodotus, Caria must have remained in open revolt for several more years before the Ionians were defeated and most of the remaining rebels surrendered to the Persians. As the tide rapidly turned against the Ionians over the course of 497 and 496, Herodotus reports that Aristagoras got cold feet. This is the same Aristagoras of Miletus who initiated this revolt in the first place, the one so eager to throw off the Persians that he relinquished his position as tyrant and led the way for the Ionians to establish some form of popular government. But he saw the writing on the wall, gathered up a few of his favorite advisors and allies, along with a few ships of soldiers and settlers, and made plans for them to run for their lives. They made for Myrkinos in Thrace. This is the same Myrkinos founded by his father-in-law and former tyrant Hestius as a silver mining colony after Darius's Scythian campaign. He left a man named Pythagoras in charge of Miletus and set off. This is not the famous philosopher and mathematician, but just some other guy named Pythagoras. Herodotus says that Aristagoras was also considering fleeing to Sardinia on the far side of Italy. Personally, I think that would have made way more sense. It was somewhere far away from vengeful Persians, where he would have had ample opportunity to settle at the periphery of the Greek world. But apparently, Aristagoras was still drawn to the valuable silver buried under Myrkinos even though Thrace was still theoretically a Cadenid territory? Not that it mattered. Sometime after arriving in Thrace, probably in 496 or 495, Aristagoras was leading his colonists in battle against some native Thracians who weren't quite thrilled with a new batch of Greek settlers. The Greeks were apparently trying to expand their little colony into neighboring settlements, and Aristagoras and his army got pinned down in a Thracian city. The Thracians attacked, and the Greeks were wiped out in their attempt. And so, three or four years deep into the revolt that he had initiated, Aristagoras, the former acting tyrant of Miletus, was dead. 
He abandoned his cause, but the Ionian Revolt carried on in his absence, stretching out for another two years. The Greeks of Anatolia and the Aegean continued to resist Persian domination. There are still twists and turns to cover, with new and surprising commanders at the helms on both sides. But that will have to wait, because next time, we'll loop back around to the beginning of 497 BCE, and explore the shifting politics and divided culture of Cyprus, to tell the story of Persian reconquest of the empire's largest island. Until then, thank you all so much for listening to this episode, and if you want more information about the podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. Over there, you'll find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and relevant maps to every episode, as well as the support page for those of you who are interested in supporting the show further than just listening to it. Most importantly, that's where you'll find links to things like Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon subscriber, you can get access to an ad-free version of the feed, my monthly email list, and most importantly, bonus episodes. You can find that at patreon.com historyofpersia. You'll also find on the support page things like my book wish lists from Amazon if some of you are feeling particularly generous and want to send me a book to read while we're in quarantine here, as well as all of my affiliate links to things like Amazon. As always, though, the best way for you to support the show is to leave a review and tell your friends. On social media, because that's the only way we get to talk to people now, use at History of Persia on Twitter and History of Persia podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Please, if you want to leave a review because you're enjoying the show or you're excited for what comes next, use iTunes, use Stitcher, use Facebook or Podchaser. Any podcast reviewing platform is great by me. I'm always excited to hear feedback. You can contact me through any of those venues or the contact page on the website, which will send an email to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. That's all for me today, so once again, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.